And so um, I'm offering today also that we're going to look in Jonah chapter 4. The entire chapter is 11 verses long. If you're familiar with Jonah, he is the one who got caught up in a fish after being disobedient. And the fish swallowed him and put him out on land. And Jonah went to a city called Nineveh preaching repentance in the city is fasting and sackcloth and ashes for their behavior, Jonah sits outside the city and waits to see what happens next. He wants to see what God's going to do to the city. So I invite you to stand as we read chapter 4. As we see that God does not bring disaster upon the city of Nineveh. It's what God did not do in chapter 4 begins Jonah's response to that. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than live. That's the second time he says it in this chapter. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. This is the Word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. A lot of you know I like hats. Well, more precisely, I like taking pictures of myself in hats. The crazier, the nuttier, the odder the hat, the quicker I want to take the picture. Now, if you're not familiar with any of that on Facebook, if you find me there and you look under hat pics, I think I call them hat tricks. I'm not sure what the category is, but there are several different ones and many of them are quite silly. 
Yet if you look through all of them, you're going to find there is not one, not even a trace of a Chicago Cubs hat. Cubs fan, no Cubs hat. What's up with that, right? Well, I'm glad I don't have one there. And I hadn't put one there for a long time. Mainly, first reason is I don't have one. And the second reason is because I'm glad is because a lot of folks would have made comments on it. It just opens you up for comments and a lot of people like different teams than that one. And the other reason now that I probably won't ever put one up there is the team's identity has changed. If you remember, for over a 100 years, their hat that they wore was lovable losers. Changed in a fortnight, didn't it? Their idea of being losers has been erased with a world championship. One of the uh, players the next day said, Today we write a new story. I liked it. I liked that a lot. And I've been thinking about that ever since. Because we all have hats we wear. We all have an identity. We all think we know who we are and what we're all about. And some of the hats that we wear, whatever they might be, a parent, a friend, teacher, um, worker, student, whatever your hat is, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, grandfather, grandmother, you, you name it, There's everybody has multiple hats. But our identity seems to come from them. And they make our identity, or so it seems when we put on that role. If you know what I mean by that, when you're in your certain role, you got certain things you got to do. If you're at home, you're either a parent or a child or, or a spouse, or, or if you're living alone, you, you wear that hat. Hey, I live alone, or I'm this person, and these are the roles that I do while I'm being that person and living that role out. That doesn't mean that's all you are. If you are a female, it doesn't mean you're just a female. Or us guys, we're not just guys. We have other things we do besides being a guy. We also have the role of working, most of us. Or we like to build stuff. We do a lot of different things. And women do a lot of different roles and identities as well. In our culture, you'll notice that roles in the home have been pretty well established for a long time. But those are changing. A new story is being written in our culture over the last several years. A new culture is being written in our country over a lot of different things. And one of the things that we're finding out is that those roles make us confused because we don't know what's to be expected now. In our family, when we grow up, we have different roles we play as well. And they did a study on it, and a lot of different people have commented on it, on the different roles that are played. And, and these are the things that I thought you might want to listen to the identity of each of these and figure out which one you might be. And you could have characteristics of more than one, and that's okay. Just make note of that. There are several different ones, and I want to go over them with you because when you hear these roles, you're going to go, oh, that makes sense now. One, the first role I want to share with you is the person they call the hero in the family. You ever heard of the family hero? It's usually the oldest child 
often described as trustworthy, dutiful, mature, helpful, organized. Characteristics of a hero also, you see this person as very independent life, successful in what they do, a really good kid, high achiever, they follow the rules, they seek approval, they're very responsible, and they're the special one. They're the one that, hey, that's the good, that's the one that's got all the looks or all the brains or whatever. That's the hero. Um, and they, uh, they have this idea that also they want everybody together. We're all in this together. Now maybe, maybe that's what you see yourself as. They're kind of the caretaker of the family. It provides self-worth to the family. If you're the hero. And, and, and those characteristics that I share with you may not be 100% down the line if you're the hero. You may have four or five of them and see yourself in another. Inside though, the hero feels hurt and guilt and a sense of inadequacy. Although they're being the hero, all those things come together. That's the hero. The second one is mascot. Sometimes they call him the clown. The one who provides comedic relief for the family. Provides a distraction from the stresses of the daily life. Now these roles are not bad or good. They just are what they are. Now a mascot, what you'll see is they got a, a crazy sense of humor. They're just funny, laughing. Everybody's always feeling good around them. But they're also fragile. Very, very thin-skinned, if you will, when it comes to emotional strength. They're immature, can act cute, <laughs> if you know what I mean by that. They act younger than their age because it was cute at one time, so they still act that way. They can be hyperactive. If you're a hero, you can be distracting from cares of life. By, if someone says, man, I'm just having a bad day, and you just want to make them feel good and laugh. That could be you, the mascot. And they're also attention seekers. Inside, if you're the mascot, you feel fear, insecurity, anxiety, and confusion. You might go, oh, man, that's me. And maybe it's not you. We got a few more. The next one is the enabler. This is the person who is very serious. Come on, everybody, let's get serious. Stop clowning around. If you say that a lot, you might be the enabler. They're self-righteous, super responsible, very sarcastic in their sense of humor and looking at life. This person might say, why should I take life too seriously? I'll never get out of it alive, but I better take it serious right now because I'm still living it. They can be passive. A lot of times they're physically sick. They are the martyr in the family. And they're very fragile as well. They also have a lot of self-blaming and self-pity. They're very manipulative. And they feel powerless. Almost like a victim. Inside, what they feel is low self-esteem, guilt, hurt, anger, pain, and fear. So if that's you, that could be what you're dealing with. Some of us have the title of scapegoat. I'm not saying me. I'm saying this is the one who is the black sheep of the family. <laughs> this person 
gets all the blame in the family. No matter what's wrong, it's their fault. One of my sisters, it was always her fault until I came along. Um, but this person can be very hostile. They can defy a lot. Parents ask them to do something or authorities are not going to do it. They're a rule breaker. They're in trouble a lot. Often wind up addicted to substances. They're withdrawn. They're sullen. They act out, meaning they act up. <laughs> and they have very strong power needs. They want the control, but they just can't seem to get it, so they get rebellious. Inside, if you're the scapegoat, here's what you feel. Angry. Jealous of everybody else in the family. Guilt. Hurt. You feel rejected and you feel fear. So if that's you, make a note of it. And the last one. They call him the lost child. A lot of families have the lost child. And this one, if it's you, you're very shy. Quiet. You have a fantasy life. You feel very solitary. Pretty much a loner. You're very mediocre. C plus average or so in school. Hey. Um, attaches to things, not people. Very aloof. Hard to get to know. They're quiet and withdrawn. A lot of times they're overweight. They fear but live and say often, I feel rejected. They're distant and they're super independent. And if you are that lost child, you become a passive adult. And inside you feel confusion, rage, not just anger, rage, hurt, fear, anxiety, and rejection. And all those different roles come about because the family system needs people to do certain things. And there's one more, and this might be you too, but normally it's easier to see this in someone else. It's called the victim. This person is stuck in self-delusion. They say everybody else has a problem and they don't. It's everybody else's fault. Here's what they do. They're very hostile and manipulative. Very aggressive. They blame the world and everybody else for all their problems. They'll never take responsibility for them. They are very, very charming. Very good con artists. They will show you in real good terms... What everybody's doing to make their life miserable. And it sounds believable. They'll sell you a bridge you didn't even know you wanted. They have very rigid values. Black and white. It's their way. Or it's wrong. They have perfectionistic tendencies. A lot of anger. Grandiosity. Great big ideas. And very compulsive in their behavior. Inside, that person has shame, guilt, fear, pain, and hurt. And maybe you, as I read these, you might be recognizing some of your family members or yourself in any of those. And I want to share with you, as um, each of those are important, but I want to share with you that there are positives and negatives to each of those. And the negatives can really be bad. The hero, for example, ends up being a workaholic. A lot of physical illness. They don't have much fun. Too busy. Too much work to be done to have fun. They're prideful. But 
if they start to look at things differently, they can be achievement-oriented versus successful. And they can say no and don't have to be perfect. If you feel like you're the scapegoat, without help, this is what happens. You get stuck in addictions, trouble with the law, very promiscuous, you got a chip on your shoulder. Uh, and you continue to play the role of a scapegoat in further relationships and jobs. Maybe you know people like this. The scapegoat always says, well, my employer just didn't treat me right, therefore I had to quit or they fired me. They just didn't understand. Always playing the scapegoat role. Constantly in trouble, can't keep a job. You never know where they're going to be in any given moment because they're just all over the place. But they can learn to be good people and feel good about themselves and be appropriate in the risk they take. These folks make great business owners, believe it or not. And these are the kinds of folks that become missionaries. All of a sudden, that scapegoat thing doesn't sound so bad, does it? Because we need missionaries. People not afraid to take a risk and tell others about Jesus. The lost child uh, doesn't share their opinion and they don't feel needed and they can die early because of that. All the internal stress. But they're very talented and creative. And they can learn to participate and share the wisdom that they have by being quiet and listening. And they feel needed and connected if you give them some time and get to know them. But they need that time to trust you. And if you're one of those who's a lost child in your family, you know what I'm saying. It takes a while to get to know somebody. It takes a while to get to know you. And you need that time to trust. If you're the clown, you continue to build up the pain inside and laugh it off. And you let other people tell you what to do to make you happy or not happy. And you're a follower and you never grow up. However, as you grow and mature, you can feel a range of emotion. You can use laughter in good ways. You can learn to take the lead in life more. And you can grow up into more responsibility. Now, um, one of the things that I want to share with you, if you saw yourself in any of those, that the enabler has another problem. What they end up doing is feeling like everybody controls their life over and over again because they want to enable people to be happy. So if you're an enabler and someone says, you know, I know I've messed up, but if you'll give me $50 for this month's rent, I'll make sure I got it and you'll keep giving it to them and you'll become a victim like that. But an enabler also knows how to help people and used in the right ways. They can pinpoint ways that are effective in changing lives. Because they know what doesn't work too. <laughs> They've done it a lot. <laughs> the one thing I want to share with you, and the reason I share with these with you, is because we all play a story out in our life. When I was pastoring at a church, we used to have... Uh, oh, I had a word processor, and, and I call it a word processor, for lack of a better name. You would type on a keyboard a sentence, and then it would type it for you on the paper. It was not really a word processor, but it would let you look at the sentence before it put it on the paper. That was how fancy it was back in the early 90s and late 80s. One day I was making the bulletin for the church, and we were going to sing the song, I Love to Tell the Story. 
You know the song, right? I love to tell the story of unseen things above. I love to tell the story of Jesus and His love. Well, I mistyped the name of the song. I caught it before it printed, but I liked my error better. Because I changed it from love to live. It said I live to tell the story. And wouldn't that be better? I live to tell the story of Jesus. That's my life. That's my joy. That's what makes me feel alive. Not loving to tell the story, but living for that purpose. In our lives, we live out our purpose based on what we think this world's about, on how we were raised and how we grew up and the roles and the hats we wear. All those things are subject to change. But get this. Wouldn't it be ironic if you continued to play that role out in social circles who have no clue what role you're playing? For example, if you played the role of the clown and you become an attorney in the court and you start cracking jokes in the court, you're not going to last long as an attorney. But you're thinking, but this always worked before. All these roles need to change to fit our life as it goes forward. So they shouldn't be constantly the same. In other words, those roles should change over time, mature and grow, so you have some of the best of all those different family roles involved in your life. Now, here's what's interesting. Those roles are society and family driven. They worked. They made our family a little more functional. They made our lives make sense. I couldn't be the oldest in our family because I was the youngest, so I couldn't have the role of the super responsible one. So I couldn't be the enabler. That person was already, and that role was already taken. I could choose, though, between scapegoat and mascot. And I bounced between those roles as I grew up. And when my parents had their 50th anniversary several years ago, we all gathered at Patty's 1800s establishment, and, and they all said, I heard them talking about me, and they said, well, you know, he's going to say something that's going to be weird or crazy, it's going to be funny. That's just what he does. He's comedic relief for the family. And I went, why can't I let go of this? Why can't they let go of it? I'm not as like I was before. I wasn't doing that anymore as an adult, but they still wanted to put me in the role I had when I was a little kid. I was silly as a kid. I tried to make people laugh, but as I got older, I said, I don't need to do that anymore. What I want to do is be the person who brings healing change to our family so we don't have to hide anymore. And it, and, and it took a while for my sisters and my parents to see that I actually had some depth behind all the humor that I threw out there. And when those roles began to change, my sister started calling me with problems. Not to be cheered up, but to find out how to work through it and how God could help. And all of a sudden, I began to be the person that would be their go-to for tough things. And I can't say that I expected it, but I understood it. Because they needed that 
And they finally realized that someone in the family they grew up in understood the pain they felt. As Christians, when we are born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ runs our lives, something happens. Scripture tells us we move from being orphans to adopted sons and daughters of God. But we are newborns in the faith. However, we're kind of like foster kids, not orphans. With this messed up thinking that came from our life before we met Christ and the ideals that don't fit the new family of God. We have thoughts, ideas, and things that don't line up with what God's asking us to do or to be. So we keep playing these old roles to get people to like us and love us. You know, we join a church or become a part of a church. We want to play those roles so people will like us and we'll just fit in real well. Sometimes we say, I don't fit in with that church or that group of people because it doesn't match how I am. Well, it's because that role doesn't fit there. And the problem is, is that we can't receive God's love real well because we think we have to earn it. Or we have to play the role the right way or God's not going to love us. And so we play those old roles in God's new family we've entered because we think they work. God loves you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be something or play a role or accomplish something for God to love you. For God to want you, to accept you, to believe in you, and to welcome you home. Do you want proof that it works? God loves you regardless. Do nothing and He still loves you. Do something. He loves you the same. You see, this is what we think. Well, I'm doing this for God and He loves me, therefore, I've earned it. (laughs) That's how we think. I said a prayer, I bowed on my knees, Jesus loves me because I did that. No, Jesus loves you. Not because of what you've done or said or where you've been or how much you can offer God. Because God doesn't need any of that. He just wants you to know that He accepts you like you are. You don't have to offer God a thing but your loyalty. But these old messages keep being replayed and the old roles of our lives keep being revised, lived out. Sooner or later we let go of some of those family roles and move on, and we go back home, it's kind of kind of like putting on an old shoe, but it doesn't quite fit right. Yeah, it used to fit good for some reason, it doesn't fit anymore. And maybe you remember that black box that I had with all the different mindsets and emotions that tell us what we are, representative of our history and our mind and our beliefs. And we've become black box people still, still thinking that what, the, what we've experienced is who we are. But Scripture says this very clearly. When Jesus Christ is in your life, you're a new creation. We don't know what new feels like. We don't know what new looks like. 
So we bring all this old into the equation and say, God, here's what I got. This is me. This is my identity. And God says, no, it's all new. You're going, I don't know new. Last time things were new for me, I was born. I don't remember that. And so God's trying to rewire all this stuff in our lives. The way we function in our families with those different roles. The way we think about ourselves. The way we see God and love and other people. And God wants to not only rewire that, He wants to reprogram us so that we see us from His perspective. God has words about you and me and ideas about you and me that we don't necessarily gravitate to because it sounds too wonderful. So how can we restore or replace those old messages and old ideas about ourselves with God? How can we fix that, if you will? As, a, as the hero, we want to refix everything and make it right, if you know what I mean. So that, so that I line up with God. So, and it's not so God will love you. Please understand this. We're not asking God to make us like new creations so He'll love us. He's loving us so we can be new creations. Love comes first, not last. In most of our lives, we learn love is a reward. Love is a result. But in Jesus Christ, love comes first. Results come later. The love that God gives is transformative love that lets us know that we are all right the way we are and God will transform us over time and He's not going to love us any less than the first day we met Him. And He'll continue to love us through the changes and the growth that we go through or even if we refuse to. It's not about being loved. It's about that you are loved. And you don't have to earn approval or acceptance, or anything like that. When we say that in 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, we have become a new creation in Christ, old things have become new, we, we don't know what it means. We think it's rhetoric for a future day. One day I'll have a new body, thank God this old body will be gone, and I'll be young forever, and then that'll be the day. What a day that'll be, and Jesus I shall see. No, new creations today, now. And we lose the relevance of what new creation is, as I've just said. And here's how it plays out. Jonah, when we started this, is sitting outside in the middle. We pick up the story at the end of the story. And the question that you might ask is, why is he sitting outside in the waiting for God to destroy the city? Jonah doesn't like Nineveh. He doesn't like the people of Nineveh. He doesn't like the region. When God tells him to go so they'll repent and God will have mercy, what does Jonah do? Oh, I love people, God, I'm going. No, he goes the opposite direction. That's how much he detests Nineveh and knows if he goes, God's going to have mercy on him. He doesn't want God to do that. He does not want Nineveh spared. Hence, Jonah runs and God brings him back. And when Jonah preaches the gospel throughout Nineveh, he does such a good job, the king calls for a fast and repentance, and the entire city begs God not to take their lives. I've never seen a revival like it. 
Jonah's done better than anybody alive today, and he's going to do it. If you don't want to do it, maybe you're the next Jonah. Could be. And he goes, and they all repent, and Jonah goes, okay, I've done my job, God, you do yours, let's destroy it, and God's not destroying the city. He says, well, I'll, I'll just go outside and wait. Because God's faithful to His Word, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. And He sits there, and the destruction doesn't come. And as I read, Jonah becomes angry and wishes he were dead. God, why are you sparing my enemies? I wish I was dead now. This is misery. Do you hear His story? These people are no good. They're bad. I don't like them. They're not worthy of God's mercy. They're not worthy of my mercy. I resent the fact that God even wanted me to talk to them. This is my story. They don't fit my life. God says, I'm writing a new story for you today, Jonah. I'm growing a plant over your head while you sit in the hot sun. And you're going to cool off during the day with that plant. You'll be thankful for that plant. And Jonah's going, thank you God for this plant. It's keeping me cool. Now destroy the city. And God doesn't. Instead, the next morning, the plant dies by God's hand. And get this. Jonah's mad because God destroyed the plant. But he's not mad because God didn't destroy the city. He wanted God to destroy the city. Excuse me. And what I want to share with you is in that moment, when he says, God, it's hot out here. I'm going to die. I'm fainting. Please, why did you take that plant? And God says, are you angry because of the plant dying? And Jonah says, yes. And here's God's challenge to him. New story, Jonah. You wanted mercy on the plant. And it's just a plant. And there's 120,000 people there. And you don't think they deserve mercy. But you think a plant does. What's wrong with your story, Jonah? Why can't you see God loves them? Why can't you see that God loves you, Jonah? Why can't you see that God loved the plant as well? Why can't you see that God has mercy on all? That He wants to be gracious and have a family out of us all. And Jonah sits there Frustrated, and it doesn't tell us what happens next. And for good reason. Because either Jonah can stay the same and be angry at God for not destroying his enemies, or he can say, God, you're right, I've been selfish. I was raised wrong. I learned wrong about the Ninevites. My whole attitude stinks when it comes to my enemies. God, they're your friends, let's make them my friends. And he has to write a new narrative for his life. He has to become other than this angry person. Doesn't it make sense that his compassion for a little tree should extend to people too? But Jonah was selfish. And his desires meant more to him. And so it is for us too. When God calls us home to be a part of His family. And I don't mean at death, I mean at rebirth. At that moment, God takes what I call a divine easel. If you're familiar with an easel, it's a three-legged thing, and they put a piece of canvas on it. And, and you look at the picture and you start to paint it. 
And I've, I've been painted like that before, where I sat there and the guy had the canvas with the back of the canvas to me, and he's painting. It was about a five-hour process, but the guy wanted practice, and I said, I'd do it. After two hours, he says, okay, let's take a break. I come up to the canvas to look at myself through his eyes, and all I see are a bunch of blotches. And I said, do I look like that to you? He said, I'm capturing your essence first. The very core of who you are before I shape out what you really look like. And I said to him, I hope it looks a lot more like me when you're done. He said, oh, this is looking real good. It's real good. It's just not done yet. God has a divine easel. In Psalm 139, he says it like this. I knew you before you were born. I knew you in your mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what David said to God. And God says, in the womb, God stood up an easel and put the back of the picture of your life to you so you had to trust God in what He was doing to brush strokes. God is better than Da Vinci. He's better than Michelangelo. He's better than Rembrandt. He's better than any artist you can think of, even Andy Warhol. And he makes better music than Beethoven or Tchaikovsky or Bach. And he writes better poems than E.E. E. Cummins or Carl Sandburg. And better prose and literature than Mark Twain or William Shakespeare. And what he says is you're looking at the back of the canvas, but you don't want to sit still long enough for me to finish the job. You're running here, putting on a new hat. Running there, putting on a new hat. Just sit in my presence and let me finish the work. Let me show you. And that divine easel, God is saying, now is no longer something He's drawing of you. He's asking you to get on the easel. But he's not painting you anymore. You're clay in his hands. And he's taking the mold of clay that you think is one way and he's going to refashion it. Like a sculptor. Maybe you're hard and stubborn and you're like a piece of granite. And God's going to take you as this hard piece of granite and chisel on you. Rather than mold you because you're not really ready for God to do the work. And God says, okay, this is going to hurt you worse than it hurts me. <laughs> Takes the hammer and the chisel and starts working on you. And you're going, oh God, that hurts. You're taking away my identity. He's going, no, I'm revealing your true identity. And it doesn't feel good. God's chipping away at the stuff that doesn't belong.
The problem is we see ourselves as a finished work right now. We say, I am who I am. And because of that, we get identity crisis when our roles change, when our lives change. And then we say, I don't know who I am anymore. Especially when we have to get out of those roles and find a new one. And we don't know how to do it. In the garden, we learn the difference between good and evil. Now we think we know what's right and wrong and true for ourselves. But it's based on our family roles, expectations, obligations, or numerous other things that cause us to put on these various hats. There's only one hat given to you when you belong to Jesus Christ. Just one hat. It says on it, Child of God, Beloved. You don't have to earn favor. So today you can write a new story of your life. Things have changed when you belong to Jesus Christ. But the question is, how do you write it? A big eraser would be a good place to start. (laughs) To erase the junk that isn't true about you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were ever a victim of gossip to just take an eraser so it never was said? Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Well, I think we've all been victim of gossip sooner or later in our lives. But wouldn't it be nice to just wipe it all out and say, man, nobody believes that stuff anymore. When God comes in and begins to remold you, He says, nobody should ever believe that stuff in the first place because that's not who you are. You're my child. The problem is, is we don't understand how to live out our lives in the kingdom of God. And so I want to share with you how I think it's done. The reason we live those roles out is because it hurts to live another way. The reason we wear the hats we wear because they're comfortable. The reason I don't own 75 or 80 different hats is because I don't like them. I own one or two of the hats in those pictures. I don't want any of the rest of them. I go into stores and try them on. I don't want to be that person who wears that hat. Or bonnet. Or whatever you want to say that those pictures are. Because that would cause new identity problems. I'm not that person. Yet we think this is who we are. And so it hurts to change a role for a while. It makes us uncomfortable. But God is asking us today to confess to the pain that the old story caused and the pain that made us have to live it. The caretaker in the family, you might be that, might have developed because there was a loss or a hurting person in the family and you somehow came to the rescue and that became your role. Well, that's because there was pain. And you came in and things were better because of what you did, so it was a good thing at the time. But that doesn't mean that's who you are. It doesn't mean that's your job. What it means is there was pain and you found a way to comfort it and thank God that you did. But if every time there's pain in someone's life you go and fix it, they never get a chance to feel the pain and you never get a chance to grieve with them. So we placate. And if we're always defiant, running away from everything... Isn't it true that we're running from the hurt and the pain of being accepted and loved or dealing with the issues that are real in our lives? 
We want to find quick fixes, simple solutions, and answers that placate rather than truth. And God says, do you want to face the pain in your life and find healing? The way you do that is you take those roles, look at them and say, I don't have to do this. It's okay. I can, when there's a difficult situation that makes me revert to that, or act out in that role, I can do this. I don't have to. I'm already loved. God's already got this figured out. He's in control and I trust Him. You can breathe a minute. You don't have to do something. You can live free. You can shake the old identity off. You can rebuke the enemy when he says that's who you are. I'm asking you today to determine now with God's help that you will embrace your true identity. Nothing added in. Blank sheet of paper. This is your identity. Loved. Accepted. No reason for it, but that you are. You are needed. You don't have to prove it. You already are. You are affirmed. Even though you don't think you're valuable, God affirms you. God wants you. You don't have to make Him want you. Or prove that He should. You are treasured. You're a valuable possession to God. You're the apple of His eye. And you didn't have to do anything to become that. Just be you. You are valued higher than anything else on earth. You are forgiven and free. There's no shame and guilt upon you anymore. And if you notice the characteristics of each of those, every one of them had guilt, shame, or anger and pain behind it. You're forgiven. That can be free. You are free now. And God says this, you don't have to have any role or hat to belong here. You already belong. Now figure out how to be loved or to love in this place. Or home. How often we try to make our family a home by playing a role. God says you don't have to do that. Come broken. Come fixed. Come mended. Come wounded. Just come, is what he says. You're already welcome. You don't have to prove it. It's okay to let go of you. Maybe you didn't know that. But today, a new story can be written by you. Because God has written it in ink for you. He's helping you erase all those years and say otherwise. I imagine there's one person here minimum that struggles with knowing how much they are loved, that they matter, that their identity is not found in just being loved by God, that their identity is because they do something. 
because they say something or because they have a role to play very well. I promise you, our society teaches this. And here's what I say. You go to work, you have a job, you get paid to do the job. Mm -hmm. That's your identity, that worker. But if you went to work and didn't get paid, wouldn't the rules change? Would you still go? Maybe some of us would. But for the most part, we do things for a future payoff. God says you've got your payoff. You're loved, accepted, and treasured right now. You don't have to do anything else but let God continue to shape you into His creation. Shouldn't God have mercy on your pain? And you're hurt? And shouldn't you? And shouldn't you be willing to let God receive you, restore you, and revive you? As surely as He did in life. Would you pray with me? God, sometimes I wonder if I'm healthy mentally or emotionally and you keep saying that's not what matters. What matters is you know where you belong. God, sometimes we say, I know where I belong. I belong in a crazy place or I, I belong in a, I belong in isolation or some people say I belong in prison. Some people say I belong anywhere but here. And yet you keep telling us, God, that it's okay 